Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And while you're there, check out our new guide to visiting our home in Crested Butte and the rest of the Gunnison Valley. It's got everything you need to know about getting here, lodging, the excellent public transit in the area, and more. We've got a link to the article in the show notes, so give that a look and come pay us a visit. Okay, this week's guest is Jordi Cortez, who you might know from Fox's excellent Dialed video series, and if you haven't checked those out already, you absolutely should. Jordi is the go-to guy for Fox's top athletes when it comes to suspension setup, and he's got a whole lot of interesting thoughts on both suspension itself and all of the mental battles that are part of top-level racing. We go deep on a whole lot of different topics in this one, so let's get right into it. Well, Jordy, thanks for coming on. How are you today and where are you today? I'm actually pretty good because I'm at home. Well, I'm in the office, which is basically home. Uh, that's in Scotts Valley, California. It's a suburb of Santa Cruz, basically. I can imagine with all the time you spend on the road, getting some time back at home is pretty nice. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, some people are such good travelers and they look forward to leaving all the time or they're home for a while. You can see them get antsy and, and that's not the case with me. Well, yeah, for folks that might not be familiar, you spend a whole lot of the race season following the World Cup circuit and working with Fox's races on their suspension setup and the dialed video series that people should definitely check out if they haven't already gives a really good insight into what that part of your job is like. And we'll get into that facet of stuff in a little bit here, but I am curious to hear a little bit what your off season looks like and kind of what you do to stay busy for this time of year when you are back home. Yeah. The off season is basically all the things you ignored during the season. <laughs> Work stuff as well as life stuff. Like half the time I come home and I have to pay my taxes because I just didn't do it on the road or something's gone. You know, three car registrations are overdue and my insurance is lapped on the motorcycle. And it's, for me, at least my life completely falls apart when I'm on the road. It's like two different, two completely different lives. I'm sure you're uh, just absolutely slammed through the race season and be keeping away up on that stuff from afar is tough. How about the work aspect of it, though? I mean, what else? What are you up to with Fox at this point in time? So right now we are going through teams, going through contracts, going through personnel for next season, uh, training and as well as developing what we're going to race on for next year. If not actual product, we're working on tunes and we're working on refining what we have. Um, basically, we, we try to do that all year long, but it's much easier to do at home where you have the resources of the engineering team and we have test equipment, things like that, that make it a whole lot easier than trying to do it out of a truck on the road in Europe. Sure. I can imagine just having better shop space and more facilities and all that makes all that kind of stuff a ton easier. Yeah. And we have these big hydraulic machines called dynos that you, you bolt in your shocks and, and run them through a program. You get a bunch of, uh, force, force and speed, uh, information out of them. So that cuts down time of testing enormously. And we don't have that stuff in Europe right now. So definitely helps to get home. Let's talk a little bit about the race season now though. So, one thing I'd love to hear you talk about some to start is just what your process looks like. You know, you show up at the next stop on the World Cup circuit and you have a new track to deal with. Where do you sort of start figuring out what you need to do to get all of your racers set up and ready to go for a given 
track and how you kind of approach just where, where did that all start? I mean, the first thing usually starts with either knowing the track, which a lot of the times you do. And we're not talking like knowing every turn and every jump. And we're talking about knowing the, the soil conditions, the terrain and the general landscape. So you get an idea of steepness and some of the ways the track's going to degrade or improve with moisture or traffic. You know, some tracks don't change at all. Some tracks like Fort William basically doesn't really change. Other tracks can change enormously. And then if you get weather, you kind of have to be prepared for all of those things. Um, and then as far as the bikes and riders go, normally from stop to stop, we try to pick up where we left off. So we don't just reset everything to a certain track. We get guys out there and you kind of start feeling out the situation before you just make changes. Does it tend to be the case? So you're going from, I don't know, just to pick two random stops, you go from Fort Bill to, I don't know, Lenzerheide or something. Does it tend to be the case that you're making largely similar adjustments to most of the athletes' bikes, or is it a lot more varied kind of case by case, depending on what their personal preferences are like and all that? Or is it sort of heavily just dictated by the track setup and how you're you know, going from somewhere steep to flat or vice versa or whatever it might be. I think steep to flat is the biggest issue we deal with or terrain changes or even some tracks that have both. So in general, we're not making these drastic changes to suspension. You're really making more changes to the overall balance of the bike. If you, you know, if you picture the kind of weight distribution pointed down a 45 degree slope and then you change it to a 15 degree slope, everything changes but it's not necessarily the function of the suspension that's changing it's just where the weight of the rider is in relationship to that right yeah i'd imagine you sort of have some sort of complicated decisions to make in terms of maybe you're changing spring rates to a comp or to compensate for the fact that you have just different weight balance on a track that's overall different pitch but maybe you're doing a lot of that with cockpit setup and bar height and too and there are kind of a bunch of different ways to attempt to go about similar adjustments that have that are pretty kind of intertwined with each other and you can't just sort of do one thing straightforward so how do you think about kind of which actual changes you want to be making and how do you sort of balance those different things yeah there there definitely are tons of minute adjustments you can make that have nothing to do with suspension as well as attitude and fatigue and things like that. Usually we take a look at the track and we have kind of snapshots of what the riders have been running. And when things start to fall outside of that normal window, we start looking somewhere else. So if people are making drastic changes and complaining of something over and over again, we tend to focus on something outside of suspension. Right. So you kind of have a, like a rough baseline settings that have worked for a given person. And you're saying if you're deviating from those dramatically, maybe it's not actually the suspension that they're feeling. You need to start thinking somewhere else yet. Yeah, exactly. Bikes are incredibly dynamic and so responsive to the most minute changes. You know, even changing your grips and you move your hands in a different position and all of a sudden you're pushing yourself back a quarter of an inch. A hundred percent. You know, in my job of just testing a billion different bikes all the time, it's always a challenge of getting everything, getting cockpit set up to feel like I want to. And you have even little stuff like 
just different amounts of bar sweeps. Now your hands are in a different spot and uh, there's so many variables that you have to kind of nail down to get something feeling right. And it's hard, you know, sort of being in my spot of going from between like five different bikes at any given time or whatever and having to just readjust and kind of get settled back in on things. It's one of the (laughs) things that's a little tricky sometimes. Oh, it's crazy. I don't know how you do it because it takes me like... I'll do test riding for other people and, you know, new bikes come out and they go, Hey, can you take this for a ride? And I have to change almost everything. You know, I have to put my wheels and tires on it, my bars on it. I can't ride SRAM brakes and, or I could, but you know, it would take me a month to get used to these things. And it's not that I'm a good rider. It's just that I've developed this really weird habit of having to have everything exactly the way I want it. Or I think about it. And as soon as you start thinking about something other than riding, you're done. Yep. No, it's hard. Uh, and kind of a skill to build of just being able to kind of readjust and deal with being not quite a hundred percent locked in on stuff. And sort of along those lines, you touched on this just a tiny bit before, but it's gotta be hard working with so many different riders, both in that you have a, just that you have a ton of people to work with and not a lot of time, but also maybe more interestingly that you kind of need, I would imagine, need to build a rapport with everybody and sort of have some understanding of their preferences and the way they communicate feedback, right? I mean, you're, it's not like you're going to have everyone who's going to come off the track and say, describe the sensations that they're feeling in the same way. And how much do you kind of just have to take some time to get to know every rider and figure out how to work with them on a different case-by-case basis? that's a huge part of it. it this isn't moto this isn't a huge semi with one suspension guy and one rider able to put down all kinds of time and different suspensions and different valve codes and having an engineer present it's like a couple people and 50 riders and they're all coming in at once um you're incredibly limited by time and a huge part of it is relationships and knowing people and basically knowing what you need to focus on and what you can kind of push aside as either not important or as something that's not applicable to what you're doing right then. I think half of my job is probably relationships, maybe even more. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And sort of at a different angle on that i mean how on say you're setting up for just a given track whatever it might be how dramatically do the setups of like a given number of riders who are similar height and weight say vary on a given track just based on a personal preference basis you have like you know if you have four people who are 511 and 170 pounds are they gonna generally tend to be pretty closely grouped in their suspension settings or does it end up being the case that it varies pretty wildly? And obviously having different bikes with different leverage curves and whatnot, different suspension kinematics confounds that a little bit, but at least on the fork side, I could imagine you could compare relatively closely. Yeah. So so settings are surprisingly close, like by weight, even different bike models, almost, almost every downhill bike runs the same shock now, as far as size and stroke. And I mean, you're not talking about huge differences, and if you are, you're probably talking about a bike that doesn't work very well. It's interesting. You know, we've been going back and forth on this and we get a lot of heat from 
the moto guys saying, oh man, you know, the bike guys don't know what they're doing. They don't, this stuff's so basic. And I think unless you've experienced it, bikes are so fundamentally different than motos because of the lack of a throttle that from my experience, it takes away a lot of the personal setup. It's like, you can ride a moto in different ways by applying throttle in different areas and how you decide to use that. Whereas a bike is solely dependent on gravity. And for the most part, they all accelerate in the exact same way. If that makes sense. It does. You know, so that I think it kind of limits how you're able to ride. And, you know, I'm probably going to get heat for this one too, but with motos, you can ride things in different ways because you have throttle. You can approach turns different ways, whoops, jumps, whatever. With bikes, I think that window of how things get done perfectly is much smaller. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. I actually, having not had much experience on motos myself, I'm really just a bike guy, might have actually even thought about it the other way in that on a bike, the rider is such a larger percentage of the total system weight than it is on a moto. You know, you don't bike only weighs 20% of what the rider does or whatever. And so I might have imagined that it would be the case that given that you can kind of have bigger changes on a bike, given that the rider is able to sort of change weight distribution between the wheels more just based on sort of, like I said, total percentage of the system weight. But the throttle variable is one that I hadn't thought of, and that makes sense. And so talking about the moto guys, how much do you really talk with them or work with them or sort of share tech ideas or I would imagine not a ton. I don't work with them at all. Yeah. I mean, I ride some moto. I'm not very good at it, but I really enjoy it. I mean, being in Northern California, there's not a ton of places to ride, but I do enjoy it off season. Um, I've always been fascinated by anything with wheels and motors and things that make noise. It's like, they're all kind of the same to me. Um, But bikes are obviously where I, grew up and what I love. So I'd rather focus on that. Um, and, and for me, the bike scene is where I want to be. Like it's rare for me to want to go out on a moto ride to clear my mind and decompress, but you get out on your mountain bike and 10 minutes later, you don't think about anything other than cruising around and riding. Motos do seem like a good time. I guess I've always been felt like I've got enough ways to hurt myself already between bikes and skis and probably don't need <laughs> to add a third one, but, uh, that's definitely true. Expensive ways to hurt myself. Should add. Uh, yeah, yeah. Expensive ways. So have not really ever dived into that world, but, uh, I could see it being a good time. So yeah, maybe one of these days. And you sort of mentioned this a little bit too, kind of saying that it tends to be the case that you're not looking to change setups too dramatically between tracks, at least in terms of suspensions set up uh but how kind of narrow a range are we really talking here like you're going from say a relatively dramatic change in track to track how would you sort of characterize how big a change you actually might realistically make for a given rider i would bet you could narrow it down to i mean a maximum of five psi in the fork and probably similar in the shock if you're running an air shock and not more than 
two clicks of anything in any direction. And a lot of times you'll make those changes the first day and then you'll end up right back where you were. Just, you know, you come into it tired or unmotivated and gradually you pick up motivation and pick up speed and then track conditions change and you kind of work into that a little bit. You mean as a rider? Like, you know, as a as a rider, yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a groundhog day thing for everybody. You know, it's, it's you just kind of go through the same processes. And different riders have different ways of doing it. Some good riders don't do anything. You know, they ride the exact same setup every race. And some are fiddling with everything. I'm sure there's sort of a balance to be struck between trying to have the quote-unquote optimal setup for a given situation versus just having consistency and being able to predict what the bike's going to do and being used to how it feels with a more similar setup rather than trying to change things dramatically. And, and I, yeah, I, said that I would be surprised at all, too, if there was just a fair bit of uh, personal preference between rider to rider in terms of how much they do want to fiddle. And I think one of the things that came out of a few dialed videos that I found really interesting was you making comments kind of along the lines of some people just want to fiddle to sort of take their mind off stuff. It's not even like they have a, um, such a clear need to change something, but are just wanting to do there's like a mental game there of deciding when you do want to start changing things versus just get locked in and settle on it. How do you, manage that if you have a situation where you think the rider's trying to make changes sort of for the sake of changing stuff that maybe doesn't actually make sense from a performance standpoint but if it makes them feel better then you know maybe there's value in that too that part's hard and that comes back to the relationship thing you know it's like you you don't want to change something for the sake of changing it if you think it's going to be detrimental to overall speed or results but you also don't want to say no and have somebody wonder or have them go do it themselves and not be able to keep track of it. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I, I have to imagine that's tricky. And that's, yeah, that's definitely a rider by rider case. And and even day by day case, you know, sometimes there's riders that can handle it and there's riders that can't. That, it, you know, some guys are constantly fiddling and they're perfectly fine with it. Other people, yeah, who might be fiddling, but they don't actually have a clear idea of where they're going. It's more like somebody else is going faster and somebody said this and maybe I want to try this, but there might not actually be a problem there. It's wild, you know, and it's up to the riders as well to develop that relationship and come around. We have plenty of riders who don't show up until things have gone sideways. It's like, well, we've been here all week. We could have worked through this process. So let's, let's try to do that next time. And then next time comes around, same thing. Yeah, it's just a very interesting place to be in terms of sort of being at this intersection of trying to be objective and methodical about what you're doing and then also having to navigate just personal relationships and human mental weirdness at the same time and balancing those two. Oh, yeah. Like, we're all a bunch of kooks or we wouldn't be out there doing this. So everybody's got their own way of doing things and their own little moods and Again, it's it's such a weird world. You know, we have so little time and you really are trying to help this massive group of people all with different attitudes, different problems, different bikes. And you think of a practice day that's like two or three hours of practice and you got most people coming down at the same time. 
or a couple minutes apart and you have you might have the 10 top athletes in the tent at the same time asking about suspension stuff and they're all kind of looking at each other and looking at you and wondering what's going on so yeah it's a weird world so on that note on a given race weekend how much time would you really get to spend with like a, a given single top athlete say greg or whoever depends on the weekend and it depends on the rider greg's super comfortable just pushing his way in and and doing what he wants so we spend quite a bit of time together we're also like we're friends off the track as well so it's a lot easier for him to just get what he wants hopefully um and there's plenty of other riders that are more than comfortable just coming in and talking like on the enduro side i talked to richie and like jesse quite a bit they'll come in and just decompress and talk and talk and talk and then sometimes just go away and we haven't done anything which is totally fine too you know it's like it's it's an incredibly hard sport right those guys are on the edge and sometimes you just need to run some ideas by somebody that has some kind of idea of what you're going through. So it's just as much mental as it is actual physical tools. So speaking of Greg, we actually had him on the podcast a couple weeks ago and didn't go super deep on suspension setup or anything, but chatted a little bit about it. And, you know, he was saying, like, of course, he's not looking to make his suspension comfortable. He's got a job to do. It's to go fast. He's trying to find what is quick, which, you know, of course, makes sense. But the angle of it that I sort of didn't really have time to go into with him, but would have loved to, you know, I could have spent five hours on the phone with him, right? Like, <laughs> someone had to let the guy go. Was just sort of to what extent does it tend to be the case that the top riders are able to sort of feel what is working and the setup that feels quote unquote good is the one that is also fast. And by good, I don't mean comfortable, obviously, but just sort of good in the sense that they are feeling comfortable on the bike in terms of the bike is setting up in a way that it allows them to go fast and push as hard as they can. And that ends up actually being the setup that is fast versus you'll do time testing and they'll go, Oh, this feels kind of weird, but actually the stopwatch says, that's working the top riders will be able to tell you the fast setup for sure we do use timing at select events but it it's such a mixed bag with downhill or enduro racing because of track changes and the fact that you ride a track 10 times you're gonna get faster that's just how it works so you can use timing to get snapshots, but it's not incredibly valid. You really have to build these relationships and build faith in the rider and confident and let them have confidence in you and learn their language so that you can kind of make decisions based on what they're saying. And in general, a comfortable setup is going to be a fast setup. And I don't mean comfortable in like, I don't feel a thing. It's comfortable in that you feel confident that the bike's predictable and it's going to do the same thing over every obstacle basically so it's not doing something different each time on the note of timing too i mean it's something that we've talked a fair bit about at blister and have spent a while thinking about at that sort of is there a good way for us to sort of try to incorporate some more timed something into our testing and reviewing of stuff but like you said it's just really hard to do it in a way that is really truly 
meaningful and consistent and producing results that are actually sort of statistically significant in between the variables you talked about, like tracks change, conditions aren't the same. The more you ride something, the faster you're going to get on it just by getting sort of more and more comfortable on it and learning it and figuring out a way to sort of get signal through the noise in that is pretty tough. Yeah. And I mean, for most people, it just doesn't matter if the bike's faster. If if you're confident and comfortable, then that's what matters. And you're going to want to ride it more. And I'm sure you've experienced it too, but it's like on a bike, you start descending something and you instantly know it's faster because you just hit an obstacle twice as fast or you, you came out of a turn and hit the next thing so much faster. It's not that hard to figure out that you're going faster on a bike. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. On a sort of somewhat related note, I guess, you've mentioned before too that you sort of think that the, I don't know, call it myth of the unbelievably harsh, stiff pro racer setups a bit overstated. How different do you really think, you know, we spend a little while working on setup on my bike. How different would that be for me, a good rider, but by no means a World Cup caliber pro by any stretch of the imagination be from someone who's really at the pointy end up there? Yeah, we go through this all the time. I think I've answered it incorrectly sometimes and sometimes I get it right. It's like, I think the like the difference between a good rider and a great rider, the setup isn't very different. It more depends on where you're riding. Yeah, I guess I meant like attempting to do the setup for same bike, same track or same area, but ju- just using the uh, different riders as the like, only separate variable. Yeah, it it's really not that different because you just you can't just make a bike stiff and have it grip or break or turn. Right? You can have it smash into things, but that's not going to help you. So there's definitely a bit of a myth of of uh, World Cup guys ride stuff so stiff. I think Aaron was like the, the number one of like, Aaron rides the craziest setup. It's so stiff, but it just wasn't really true. Where do you think that that myth came from then? How did this idea get out into the public consciousness? Because you hear it all the time. I don't know where it came from, whether it's, (laughs) I mean, sometimes you look at these guys and most of them are so much stronger than the average rider that you watch them ride and the bodies, they stay relatively stable and they look like they're just smashing into everything. Where in reality, they're just so much better than most people that the bike's not doing all this wild stuff. But I don't know like who started these rumors because it, it was around when I started at Fox seven years ago that oh Aaron runs this crazy setup. And maybe seven or eight years ago when, you know, bikes were still, well, they were far worse than they are now. Maybe you had to run things stiffer. I don't know. But that's Jeff definitely not the case. If you're capable of riding the same terrain in, in some form, your setup's probably not going to be that different. The thought about bikes improving over the last seven years, say, which is certainly extremely true, is interesting, too. Do you think, I mean, it's probably hard to say since you're not comparing the same suspension parts over that time either. I guess, yeah, do you think the sorts of setups that people are running have changed as a result of bikes getting, well, longer would probably be the most significant thing and 
rear suspension kinematics have gotten more consistent between different models too. You're you're seeing less weird stuff that you're having to try to <laughs> work around, I am sure. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I think everything has gotten better. Suspension has gotten far better, but we're still we still have a lot of room for improvement. Just I mean, the bike industry's pretty wacky. Like it's it's very marketing driven. Um people are still trying to differentiate themselves with different designs and and different ways of doing things that have been done really well for 30 years. So until that aspect of it kind of gets solved and you approach things as a, I want to make things better, not I want to design something different. I think we're still stuck in the dark ages a bit. Like if you look at most other motorsports, there really isn't a reinvention. There's a basic chassis whether it's a piece of suspension or a linkage arm or a motor and they're refining that and they're learning and learning and learning. Whereas if they built an entirely new system every two years and then had to learn that you never really catch up. And to take the moto example again, it's like if you took a shock from 10 years ago and a shock today, they basically look exactly the same. Some of the internals might be a little bit different. The functions are the same. You take a mountain bike shock from 10 years ago and you take one today and they're completely different. Even two years ago, the internals are totally different. So it's like this process of reinventing itself every time is just kind of hindering us all. Kind of from the sense that you start from scratch and you get to the 90% 90% refinement level on a given thing. And then you just throw out away and totally start over. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. And start again. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like the, the turnovers probably faster than it should be on some level at the same time. I don't know. I mean, it's like we said about bikes haven't gotten immensely better in the last five, seven, ten years. I mean, just what is sort of, normal for geometry has changed immensely right and i don't know i remember thinking you know three four five years ago that it sort of felt like you could see the end point of where this was going but manufacturers were just reluctant to make these big quantum leaps forward in that and doing a degree every couple years and just inching towards what what felt like an endpoint that was already visible from, from that point. And so I don't know. I mean, on one hand, it's sort of like we're probably not doing ourselves any favors by making those dramatic changes, but at the same time, mountain bike tech and geometry is somewhat less mature and, or has been in the last five years anyway, than a lot of motorsports motos, etc. And so maybe that is kind of a time to really just go for it and start changing stuff, at least in a not doing it for the sake of changing things, certainly. But, you know, you can see ways in which it makes sense to really get after it. Yeah, absolutely. I I think I'm not saying don't change. I'm saying that what a lot of man, this is hard politically, but just 
there's so many different ideas out there about what makes a bike good. And granted, having to pedal a bike places changes things completely. Right. But, but there's just, there's just no way that 10 different forms of kinematic are all good. Right. If people are doing all kinds of stuff and coming up with these ideas, you're just like, well, that's not true. Like, did you go ride this or have you ridden anything else? And so many companies don't do that of like, well, are this bike's amazing. It's like, oh, compared to what? Oh, compared to our bike from last year. Like, well, what about this bike or this bike or this bike? Like, what's the benchmark? And we have to do that as well. We have to know what other people are riding and know what other people are building. The other thing is like bike model years, everything's coming so fast. It's like, you're always in this scramble to build something new and people always want something new, not always something better. It does seem like the bike industry is at least taking the first few steps in some cases to moving away from having to do a new model year every year. And you've got more companies that are just updating things on whatever their development cycle turns out to be, which I think is great. I'm all for that. I mean, needing to just roll out new paint on the same thing and call it a new model year is silly and been doing that for too long. So that's a positive step that there's a lot more room to take that very reasonable thought further than we have though so far, but um, it's going somewhere. And I'm not trying to point fingers either. I'm, I'm guilty of the exact same thing, right? Like I want to ride the newest stuff and I want to ride the coolest stuff, but is it better? Could I have just spent a bunch more time working on something old and gotten it better than the new stuff? Maybe it just, there's, there's a, there's a lack of science-based decision-making yeah, it does also seem like in terms of suspension kinematics, to use one example of it, you've got lots of companies using different proprietary linkages with all manner of acronyms and whatnot and ending up actually implementing not wildly dissimilar setups with things that look real different. And they put some marketing spin on it and say, we have this patented blah, 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 that when you dig into it you know the leverage curves and anti-squat and what all not actually that far out in left field is pretty similar to what everyone else is doing and and the window in which sort of the vast majority of bikes on the market exist has narrowed a whole bunch also in the last bit you know you don't have nearly as many people doing really kooky stuff anymore definitely true yeah, I think we're in a good time. Like, I think things are headed in the right direction. Just depends on how long it gets there, how long it takes to get there. But yeah, people are really starting to delve into the kinematic side of things. And there's so much more, like, I'm pretty green as far as going in deep and what it actually does to the ride quality. But uh I have a friend locally who works for one of the bigger brands and he's kind of developing kinematics and he's learning it all day by day, like self-taught basically. So I'm kind of piggybacking off him and we're, we do a lot of talking about how these things matter. And I'm lucky enough to have him building mules and riding different things and being like, well, this is what this did and this is what this did. 
and I think that's where the bike world gets a little bit lost is not really having time to explore different options and and if they don't work get rid of them and if they do work you keep developing that option it's more like we pick this we make a prototype and it goes to build and that's it especially for carbon manufacturers right yeah with mold costs being what they are you can't and timelines now are ridiculous if you're trying to get anything built. Yeah, I can imagine it's super hard to really try that much stuff when you're spending that much money on a mold and and all that. To uh, sort of go a little more on, I guess, directions for suspension products. I got a few things I wanted to bounce off you. One I'm curious about is your thoughts on dual crown forks for kind of more enduro applications and why that hasn't really taken off yet. I guess for some background on this, a few years ago, I spent quite a while. I was I was riding a uh, the first generation Geometron Nikolai. It's a super out there, sixty two degree head angle enduro bike, basically, and bought the bike in twenty seventeen, I think, and put a thirty six on it to start, and basically found that. I mean, the forks have gotten stiffer since then. This is a couple generations back now. At 170 millimeter travel and a 62 degree head tube angle, the four aft stiffness, and that was just not where I wanted it to be. And so I went, well, kind of looked around, didn't see too many options. And I, I lowered a 40 to 180 millimeters and spent quite a while just pedaling around a 40 on the front of that thing. And, you know, frankly, for my, at least for what I'm doing, you know, you see people, people would see me pedaling it up all the time and be like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, this looks crazy. How can you ride that thing? Blah, blah, blah. And, I don't know. It obviously it's heavier. There's a, a real weight penalty to be paid there, but all the other sort of downsides that people float as being potentially problematic on a, a trail bike with a dual crown really didn't come up much for me. Like, yeah, you, it does limit how far you can turn the bars to some extent, but in practice, it wasn't a big deal. The number of times that it actually stopped me from doing something was just a couple. It wasn't, and it was like the couple times it did come up, it was you know, some super tight uphill switchback where putting a foot down, bumping it around, I can live with that. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, if it's a one in a hundred scenario, it doesn't really matter. Right. Exactly. And so, I don't know, I've just been hoping to see some more movement on that kind of, I don't know how much weight you could really realistically pair out and make a dual crown that splits the weight between the full downhill forks and the bigger enduro single crowns. But I'm curious why you think you haven't seen more people trying that. <laughs> I think there's a few reasons. Um, and depending on riding area is probably a, a big part of that. Uh, and now I'm going to get into <laughs> kind of personal ideas of what geometry is and isn't. But um, I've also ridden some really slack trail bikes and some double crown equipped trail bikes and I def I, in my personal opinion I've found the limit of like I th I think a crazy slack trail bike just isn't that good it depends a lot on where you're riding I mean I'm in western Washington and basically just grinding up fire roads and then descending steep stuff back down and so that's a I totally admit that that's a case where the downsides are far less apparent and you can mitigate them and it's not a bike i would want to ride everywhere i don't 
pretend that it's like the perfect solution for everyone and everywhere by any stretch. But here you can kind of get away with a bit more of that. I think the four half stiffness thing, there's definitely some validity to that. Uh, overall, I think stiffness is a little bit misunderstood or mis misapplied in some ways that you really don't want a stiff bike. You want that flex to happen in particular areas and in specific ways, but you, you would definitely need to make a specific, you know, 180 to 190 dual crown fork to get it to feel the right way. At least in my opinion, and you're talking about an incredibly limited market. And now that forks are getting better and better, things are getting stiffer and stiffer. It's kind of one of those things where you're you're talking about an incredibly limited market. So when you say a limited market, I mean, we've seen stuff like the 38 and the Zeb sell really well. But you just think that it would be a tougher kind of tougher sell for consumers to get on board with the idea of an enduro dual crown even if let's just wave our hands and say hypothetically it weighs the same as the 38 whether or not that's realistic is a separate question that maybe it's not but are you, your take is just that uh even if this hypothetical magic fork that i just laid out existed convincing people that that's something that they want to be bolting onto their trail bikes would be a heavy lift i I think so, yeah. And I think that the benefits for most people are, would be incredibly slim. Like, I was riding trail bikes with like 62 and a half, 63 head angles on pretty steep stuff. And then same bike with an adjusted to 64 head angle. And I still felt that overall 64 head angle was better for a trail bike. And this is pretty modern geo, like relatively long, long chain stay. I th it really depends on the big picture. And if all you're doing is park laps, then that's probably okay. Well, park laps, that's kind of a broad definition. But like if you're riding Bellingham area, stuff like that, maybe. But I think for most people, it's still, if you go too aggressive on geo, it's harder to ride as well as just being middle of the road. Like there's plenty of people pushing incredibly long, super slack, but you have to be going a certain speed to make those things work. So it's like that window of people that could make it work better. You know, when bikes get too slack, they're not super fun to ride. Dep depending on the person. And even for me, like I'm not a great rider by any means, but I'm competent. And if you're not ready for a 62 and a half degree trail bike, it gets a little bit weird. And I, th I don't think the weight thing's a huge deal. It, I mean, you're probably talking about 200 grams with a bike that probably weighs 38 pounds anyway. For one thing, for an OE, it's hard because you're talking about way more installation costs. And I know even though it's just a triple clamp, another clamp and tubes, all that stuff goes into budgeting. So, and then as an aftermarket, you don't sell that many forks aftermarket period compared to OE stuff, right? 
so then building one that maybe a few thousand people are going to buy, I think it's far better for a niche manufacturer to attack that problem. And I think some people are. Formula's got one that they've been showing off as a prototype that hasn't hit market yet, but... Intend has that, like, half a triple clamp one. Oh, I mean, yeah, that one's... That's an incredible amount of money, but it's beautiful product. Yeah. That's neat, yeah. I think Mojo was making a 36 kit to run yep. doubles, but I don't know if it fits the new yep. four. They had that going yeah. for a little bit. I don't know. I, I just haven't seen a huge use for those, especially riding a modern 38 fork. Yeah, it's true. The The newer kind of class of Broyer single crowns is a pretty big step forward on the stiffness front and gets you a good chunk of the way there. It also just allows more real estate inside the fork to do different things because air springs are tricky to fit into forks. Dampers are tricky. Enough oil to keep the fork working for a while is hard. All these things add up to just needing more room. Yeah, another reason dual crowns are great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of need more room in the bottom, not so much in the top, but yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Plus, I don't know, they just look hideous. Really? I can't stand it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I care, but fair <laughs> enough, I guess, to each their own. Yeah. Do you still have that bike? I don't have that one. I do actually have a G1 now, The their updated bike. I was looking at those earlier. The uh, Just the amount of adjustability in the new one is enormous in terms of geometry. You can, between the chain stays and seat stays, both being adjustable length, you can get real weird and experiment with wheel sizes and run run it full 29 mullet, full 27.5, kind of do whatever you want. And um, Yeah, I like that ability. Yeah, that's been cool. I think most people would get lost, but I like that ability to do that. Is that bike creak? No. It's real quiet. They've got that worked out pretty well. Yeah, there's sort of some pretty clever um, kind of keying of the chainstay adjusters in particular that makes it pretty solid. Um, it's not light, but uh, no, nah. whatever. Um, but I mean, I'm riding a Bronson right now with some different parts on it, linkage-wise, and that bike's not light. <laughs> With, you know, with double down tires and, and a cush core in the back, it's 36 and a half pounds or something with a coil shock on it. So 37, whatever. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make a difference. It's fine. We've been banging on about that for quite a while at Blister that for most kind of cross-country racing, it's this whole other deal. But for the riding that most people are doing, little bit of weight, especially on stuff like the frame where it's sprung weight and so on is just not that big a deal yeah i kind of agree well on the subject of making things heavier then also wanted to ask why you think we've kind of as an industry largely moved away from coil sprung forks rear shocks are common i would imagine that one of the big things is that you just can't build in progression with a linkage in a fork like you can in a rear shock with a rear suspension layout but is there more to it than that? Yeah, there there is. Uh, dealing with, well, a fork is one-to-one. Like you said, there's no linkage, right? It moves, every inch it moves, you get an inch of travel. And in those situations, air springs work really well. And I was saying we don't really have enough room to do everything we want, 
but we do have enough room to make a pretty flat air spring, right? It's got it. It doesn't have a big hook on it anymore. It doesn't have a ton of nose force and it's a whole lot lighter. Not to mention that most coil forks make a lot of noise. Sooner or later, they might be quiet the first day, but sooner or later that, that spring uh, packing comes off and they start to bang against the stanchions. I mean, even the coil conversion kits now that you put in, your fork's done. You can't go back because the spring's right. banged against the inside of the fork and you can't use it anymore. You know, the, everybody jumped on board with those coil conversion kits. And I think about a year after most of them came out, people were coming by the truck asking to take them out again. Interesting. And what were they, what was their reasoning for doing that? Why were they wanting to go back? I th- th- a little bit of everything. They are, they're super loud. They're super heavy. They're a bit harder to tune. You can't just make a quick on-the-fly adjustment. And air forks work really well. Like a modern air fork is good. You put a coil kit in it and you're like, oh, wow, this is so supple and this is this and this is that. But did it make it any better? It feels different. And maybe in some types of riding, you're going to get a little more grip. But I think the the drawbacks greatly outweigh the the benefits in that case. I mean, we still make a coil fork too. Not so much at the high end though. I mean, you've got... No, true. They've mostly faded there. Yeah, I mean, that'll make sense. And I would imagine, too, you probably have a more stark weight difference in a going to a coil fork versus an air spring fork than you do on the, on the back end, you know, bigger, longer spring, et cetera. Yeah, you definitely feel it. And I th- some One kit has a hydraulic ramp, I guess. The Vorsprung one, yeah. Uh, you know, then, again... It's like, if you're riding at home, whatever, if you're racing it, you have no support. You have an extra hydraulic damper in your fork. And if things go wrong, you're stuck. You're not going to put your air spring back in because the fork gets ruined as soon as you put a coil kit in it. So there's definitely different reasons for doing things. But again, I've ridden both back to back. And while you can feel the difference, does the difference make any noticeable gains in your riding i don't think so yeah i mean it's been been a while since i spent much time in a coil fork it's you know i think if you saw one you'd see it on a downhill bike and i know that there are some teams running coil kits in other people's product still on the world cup circuit but i think that has more to do with the performance of the stock product than it has to do with like coils are better because that's that's where you find things is in downhill racing first because the weight's not as big a concern it's all about downhill performance and one other thing i'm curious to hear a little bit about actually kind of circling back to the the dh race scene here is um setup wise kind of tech nerdy stuff is fork offset and why most dh forks are still running significantly longer offset than the, uh, enduro forks say um and now the new generation 40 you've got what four different crowns for it now and have a uh, fair bit of ability to mess around with that but they are kind of the you know middle of the spectrum is trending a bit longer than 
you do on Enduro Fork still. So I guess one, why? And two, how much variation is there in what offsets uh, the World Cup pros are choosing to use on those? Uh, I'll answer the last one first. There's quite a bit of variation. Well, no, you have the ability to choose quite a few different options. What people choose is 99% the same. Um, and why? I don't fully know. I We'd really need to go out there and figure all this offset stuff out, which has proven to be quite hard. Honestly, I think partly that this whole offset and trail formula came from Moto. And everybody kind of ended up in the same place for quite a while until, you know, maybe seven years ago, people started shortening offset on trail bikes. I do think at the time, trail bikes were pretty bad. They were really short, steep head angles, kind of wacky. So that shortened offset and slowed steering kind of stabilized the bike a little bit. I do. I still agree that a shorter offset is better on a current modern bike, but I've gone shorter than I think kind of the standard now is like a 44 offset for a 29er. That's like middle of the road. I've gone shorter and I can't stand it. I've gone longer and it's like a little bit weird still too, but I'm not totally sure why. And I don't know why downhill bikes are a little bit long. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it. One of them is that downhill bikes are way slacker and always have been. The axle to crown is a whole lot longer on a downhill bike. I think all of these things come into play as to why you don't want a way shorter offset. And I know some people on the circuit have been doing really short offsets, but it's like a a one off deal and some guys like oh i'm running 29 mils of offset and i love it like well you're finishing 23rd and you have nothing to compare it to and i'm not saying like 23rd is great in a world cup you're an amazing rider but are you doing something because you think it's the right thing have you actually tested back and forth or did somebody just push you in this direction and tell you this is this is the way to do it i've done a fair bit of experimenting with offsets myself and like you said i mean i think uh about 44 on a modern 29er trail bike i think is about right i've tried shorter and also didn't like it i kind of still feel like uh getting a little closer to that on dh bikes is sort of at least my personal preference too a lot of the forks out there are still coming a little longer than that and yeah just curious why you thought that was i i honestly i don't know i there has to be some sort of crossover I mean, I can't give you a specific. I have plenty of ideas and we've definitely tested back and forth and we always end up back at around a 52 offset for a 29er downhill bike. We've gone shorter in small increments for prototype testing and in certain scenarios have liked the shorter one slightly more, but overall we always end up right back at that 52. Well, Jordy, this has been super fun. I should probably let you get going here. But before I do, the name of the podcast is Bikes and Big Ideas, after all. So 
do you have a big idea to share with us? And this can be absolutely anything off the wall and crazy or something serious. <laughs> Just anything goes here. Shit, you really put me on the spot. Yeah. I'm super anti-big ideas. <laughs> so your big idea is that we just don't do big ideas. You should have a lot of small ideas instead of having one big one. <laughs> That's a creative answer to that. I have not heard that one before, but I kind of like it. All right. Jordy's big idea is no big ideas. Cool. Yep. Perfect. And that, that is a great way to wrap this up. Thanks, Jordy. This has been super fun. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you enjoyed this conversation, then please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Jordy for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And from all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everyone else. And we will talk to you again real soon.